And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. If you get your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We just got uh, uh, three little verses this morning. But of course, as is most thing in Romans, they're not little. Right? Uh, we've seen that already and we'll, we'll see it again today. So we're going to begin reading in verse 14. Uh, if you would and you're able, would you just stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? This is Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 14. And here's what Paul writes. If I can find it. Here we go. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before You this morning just to bow the knee and to um, acknowledge our need of Your help. Father, it's only by the Spirit that we're going to understand what You want to say to us this morning through this passage. So we ask that You would do that, that You would accomplish that, that You would do a work of our, in our hearts so that when we leave here today, we would be more like Your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His precious name we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever struggled with assurance of your salvation? Yeah, I see a bunch of hands all over the place. Assurance of salvation is a problem in really two opposite ways, two opposite directions. Some think that they are saved when in reality they are not. Uh, when it's too late to repent, they're going to hear these words from Jesus that we actually read last week. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Uh, they thought that they had saving faith, but they were mistaken, so they have what we would call false assurance. Others, they're truly saved, but they wrestle with doubts concerning their salvation. Their uncertainty causes them a lot of anxiety and grief. They're kind of like insecure children who live in an unloving home with a mean father who threatens to disown them. They miss out on the joy of experiencing the Heavenly Father's love. They're unable to come to God with the assurance that He will welcome them into His loving arms. They need true assurance. Now, Romans 8 is all about assurance of salvation. If you are walking in the flesh, but think that you're saved, this chapter is going to jar you into examining your own heart. Only those who walk according to the Spirit can have true assurance that they belong to Christ. Now, one ministry of the Holy Spirit is to assure us that we are God's children. Now, in the New Testament, assurance, uh, it really rests on three pillars. First, uh, have you abandoned all trust in your own good works so that you are now trusting in Christ alone for right standing with God? If your answer is yes, then the question arises, how do you know that your faith is genuine, saving faith? And that leads to the second pillar. If your faith is genuine, then you possess new life in Christ. And that new life always manifests itself in changed thinking, 
changed behavior. There's going to be evidence in your life that God has changed your heart. You love God more. You desire to love Him more. You want to please Him by a life of obedience to His Word. You actually hunger for His Word. You're growing in godly character and behavior as summed up in the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this third pillar is the inner witness of the Holy Spirit who testifies that we are children of God. This is verse 16 we're looking at this morning. Some dispute any subjective element in this. In other words, is it something personal to you? But it seems to me that it is subjective, experiential stuff that we're talking about here. As I will explain, it's based on the objective principles of the gospel as revealed in God's Word. Now, in our text, Paul is giving us the signs of true assurance. Uh, so our main thought this morning is, if the Spirit is leading us to kill our sin and confirming to us the promises of the gospel, then we can be assured that we are indeed children of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we just come to, to thank You for Your goodness. Pray that You would speak that truth into our hearts, uh, Lord, that we would see exactly what's going on here and we would have that assurance, Father, there would be no doubt that we are Your children. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's just two main points or two points that we're going to be covering this morning. If the Spirit is leading us to kill our sin, then we can be assured that we are the children of God. This is verse 14. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, it's important to note that first word of the sentence there, for. <laughs> Paul is examining verse 13, what we looked at last week. He's showing how it applies in the matter of assurance. Now, in the context, he's not talking about how the Spirit may lead you to go to one college or another or choose one career or another. Rather, Paul is saying that if the Holy Spirit is leading you to put to death the sinful deeds of the body, that's verse 13, it is evidence that you are a child of God. No one who is living according to the flesh kills sin on the heart level. Some legalists or ascetics, they may control their sin outwardly so that they can look good to others, but they are filled with pride about their performance. They don't kill their sin to glorify God. They actually try to deal with their sin to glorify themselves. But here Paul is saying that if the Spirit is leading you to kill your sin on the thought or, or the heart level out of a desire to please and glorify the God who saved you, that is evidence that you are His child. To be led by the Spirit of God means to have the whole direction of your life determined by the Spirit so that His fruit is growing in your life. Now, I want you to note that the verb is passive. It's led by the Spirit. Thomas Schreiner explains, This suggests that the Spirit is the primary agent in Christian obedience, that it is His work in believers that accounts for their obedience. Although this does not exclude the need for believers to follow the Spirit, it emphasizes that any human obedience is the result of the Spirit's work. End quote. John Murray, he expresses this balance. He says, The activity of the believer is the evidence of the Spirit's activity, and the activity of the Spirit is the cause of the believer's activity. End quote. 
Now, this is a mystery that we saw last week in verse 13, where by the Spirit, we kill our sin. God gives us the power, but we must take action to obey. So Paul's point in 8.14 here is that if the Spirit of God is leading us to kill our sin, then we can be assured that we are sons of God. Now, it's significant that this is the first time in the book of Romans that Paul mentions just this wonderful truth that we are actually the children of God. We have been born into God's family through the Spirit who imparts that new life to us. And we have been adopted into God's family as His chosen heirs. That's what 15 and verse 17 says. Now, Charles Hodge, he points out three implications of being sons of God. Uh, number one, there is similarity of disposition or character or nature. After commanding us to love our enemies, Jesus explains in Matthew 5, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You see, sons reflect the character of their Father because they share His nature. Well, number two, sons are the ob objects of special affection. Now, I love all children, but... I have a special love for my own, my own children. Uh, God has a special love for His chosen people, or His just children. Well, number three, sons, they have a title to some peculiar dignity or advantage. They are heirs of the riches of their father, according to verse 17. They have special access to His presence that others lack. If the president is greeting a crowd somewhere, the Secret Service are going to prevent any unknown children for, from making their way up to him. But if, the child, if his children are there, they can be right at his side. Now, we could probably come up with quite a few more privileges that are ours because we are God's children. Paul's first point is, if we are killing our sin on a daily basis, that didn't come from us. It's an indication that, it's, that the Spirit is leading and governing our lives. John Piper puts it this way, When you fight sin by trusting in Christ as superior to what sin offers, you are being led by the Spirit. And that is a sign that we are sons and daughters of God. Well, second major point this morning, Spirit is confirming the promises of the gospel to us then we can be assured that we are children of God. This is verse 15 and 16. Paul goes on to explain some of the implications of verse 14. First, in verse 15, he shows that the gospel has given us the spirit of adoption as God's Son, so that we are now on intimate, childlike terms with the Father. Then in verse, verse 16, he shows how the Spirit confirms the gospel promises to us through his inner witness. He follows in verse 17a, which we're actually not covering today, by, by showing the implication that if we are God's children, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Then in verse 17b, he responds to an anticipated objection. If we are God's beloved children then why does He allow us to suffer? Now, this theme runs through, like a, runs through the rest of the chapter like a thread. I originally planned to cover verse 17, but it, it just became a little bit much to add to it. So we're going to have to wait until after Easter. Okay, that's three weeks from now, all right? Lord willing. 
So A, the Spirit confirms the gospel promise that through adoption, we become the children of God. This is verse 15. Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, there's a difficult interpretive matter in this verse that we need to uh, tackle before we try to apply it. How should we understand two spirits? You didn't, you didn't receive this spirit of slavery. You received a spirit of adoption. Now, some, such as the NASB, if you've got that version, you're going to notice that both of those spirits are a small s. In other words, they're referring to the human spirit in the sense of like an inner attitude or a disposition. But in light of the context where the Holy Spirit is very prominent and the parallel passage in Galatians 6.4, which clearly refers to the Spirit, uh, most understand the second reference in verse 15 to refer to the Holy Spirit as that Spirit of adoption. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us into this relationship as adopted sons of God. But what about that first Spirit? Well, it could refer to the human spirit of unbelievers in the sense that people are enslaved to sin and in fear of God's judgment. But not all unbelievers fear God's judgment, do they? Some of them are quite happy in their sin. All right. It could refer to the general spirit of those who were under the law, which was a yoke of bondage, and it brought condemnation and fear of judgment. But many argue that it is unlikely that Paul would use spirit to refer both to the human spirit and to the Holy Spirit in the same verse. Now, if it refers, if that first spirit refers to the Holy Spirit, it may refer to the way that he worked during the era of the law, similar to what the second view that I just stated a second ago. Others apply it more specifically to the work of the Spirit when He uses the law to bring conviction of sin just prior to conversion. Now, this is how Martin Lloyd-Jones sees this verse. Um, still others contend that Paul is saying something negatively, that the Spirit we, we receive at salvation is not a spirit of bondage, but a spirit of adoption. But because, particularly of Galatians 4, I think that Paul is referring to the human spirit of bondage and fear that the law brought. Now, by way of contrast, the Holy Spirit now transforms us. Somebody's pointing at something. Switch to... Po I'm cutting in and out. That's no good. Let me turn this off. Let's try that. Can you hear me now? Anybody know that guy's name? You don't remember, do you? Paul. And he switched. He changed on us 20 years later. Now I want to represent this company because they pay me more. Anyway. It's a pet peeve of mine in case you can't tell. Well, there are two ways that the New Testament speaks about our becoming sons of God. One is through the new birth. We see that particularly in John chapter 3, and it's mentioned in other places as well. And the other is through adoption. Now, adoption is relatively rare. It occurs only three other times with reference to Christians. That's in Romans 8.23, 1 
Galatians 4, 5, and Ephesians 1, 5. Now, in that last reference, uh, it attributes our adoption to God's predestining us to, according to the kind intention of His will. Like justification, adoption refers to a legal transaction that results in a change of status. Leon Morris says, it signifies being granted the full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one does not belong by nature. All right, so it's going against that nature. William Barclay, he explains the consequences of adoptions, adoption in Roman society. And this is probably where Paul is borrowing this concept of adoption. So number one, the adopted person lost all rights in his old family, and he gained all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. In the most binding legal way, he got a new father. Well, number two, it followed that he became uh, heir to this new father's estate. Even if other sons were afterwards born, it did not affect his rights. He was inalienably co-heir with them. Number three, in law, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. For instance, all debts were canceled. He was regarded as a new, new person entering a new life with which the past had nothing to do. And four, in the eyes of the law, he was absolutely the son of his new father. Now, when the Holy Spirit enables us to believe in Christ and to understand our new standing as adopted sons of God, all of these privileges apply to us and they result in a great change in us. We have a new legal status before God, but also we have a new relationship with God as Father. Paul says that the result of our adoption is that by the Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, that cry out, that's an emotional word. And it's used over 40 times in the old, well, particularly in Psalms, for crying out to God in urgent prayer. God's adopted children often cry out to Him as their father when they are in need. Now, Abba, Father, that comes to us from the Aramaic and the Greek words for father. Jesus addressed the father this way in Mark 14, 36. This was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was just prior to His rest. He began His prayer there in Mark with Abba, Father. Now, He taught His followers, us, to pray to God as our Father who art in heaven. When Paul applies Abba, Father, to us as God's adopted children, it means that we can draw near to God in our distress or time of need with the same sense of intimacy and assurance of being heard that Jesus had. Now, James Boyce points out that in the Old Testament, Father was only used of God 14 times and never in a personal sense. No one ever called God Father. In Jesus' time, God's name was so revered that Jews wouldn't even pronounce it. They would substitute Lord instead of Yahweh when they came to it in Scriptures. But Jesus always addressed God as Father. There's only one time when He didn't. Do you know when it is? It was again in Mark 
when he was hanging on the tree bearing our sins, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he was likely quoting Psalm 22.1 when he did that. But as I said a minute ago, Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father. Now, some have picked up on Abba by addressing God as Daddy because that was the word that little children used in Aramaic to address their daddies. Okay? Now, I confess, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that because Jesus adds that we should acknowledge that our Father is in heaven and that His name is to be hallowed or set apart. In other words, while Father or Abba does indicate intimacy and dependency, we must always remember that as we draw near, we're drawing near to the Sovereign of the universe and that His name is holy. So we should come to Him as, as a little child uh, who, who comes to His Father knowing that He loves us and He delights to meet our needs. But we must also come before Him reverently. How many have ever read Knowing God by J.I. Packer? If you ha- I see some heads and I see some hands. If you haven't, it's worth reading. Uh, it's, just, it's, it's just a classic. It is so good. Well, he has one chapter in there titled, Sons of God. I'm going to read just a little bit of it. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. He continues, If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. He closes this section by saying, Father is the Christian name for God. So the Spirit assures us by confirming the promises of the gospel to us, teaching us through the word that we are God's adopted children, and that as such, we can cry out to Him in any need as our loving Father, knowing that He cares for us. Well, B, the Spirit confirms the gospel promises to us through His inner witness. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, there is some debate uh, here as to the meaning of the verb. Strictly interpreted, it means to testify or bear witness with. That word with, that means there are two witnesses, our spirit and the Holy Spirit. And many reputable commentators understand it in this way. I confess I struggle with that because I really don't see how my spirit bears witness to, to me apart from the spirits bearing witness. The verb can also mean to bear witness to, not just with, but to. 
C.E.B. Cranfield, he asks a pertinent question here. But, but, but what standing has our spirit in this matter? Of itself, it surely has no right at all to testify to our being sons of God. End quote. And so I understand this to mean that the Holy Spirit confirms to our spirit the promises of the gospel. It's an immediate and direct inner sense that the gospel is not only true, but it's true in your life. It's a subjective thing. If you believe personally in the truth of the gospel, where did that faith come from? It didn't originate in you. Paul says the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That's 1 Corinthians 2.14. Earlier in Romans 3.11, Paul says there is none who understands, there is none who seeks God. To understand and believe in the gospel requires a supernatural work of God's Spirit in your own heart. Now, when you say both at the point of conversion and then through the years later, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Well, uh, that's the inner witness of the Spirit to your spirit that you are a child of God. When you're feeling guilty and condemned because of your sins and you read... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And inside you go, thank God. Where does that inner sense of joy come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit testifying to your spirit that you are a child of God. Or maybe you're feeling all alone and and wondering if anybody cares for you at all. Then you read that you can cast all of your cares on God because He cares for you. That's from 1 Peter 5. And as you read that promise, your spirit is buoyed up with renewed hope in the Lord. Where did that hope come from? That's the Spirit of God testifying to your spirit that you are in fact God's child. Now, i gotta, I got to admit, on quite a few occasions, I have literally been overwhelmed spiritually and thus emotionally by a particular song. Last time it happened was the song, The Mighty Cross. This is relative to the new song, and this is just a couple of years ago. The opening line of the song says, On the day that death surrendered to the mighty cross of Jesus Christ. I got through that first line and just started bawling like a baby. And I was weeping because of what Christ did on the cross. Keith and Kristen Geddes, the power of the cross has had the same effect on me. The opening line again, Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary. Mm. Another one is an old song by a group called New Song. Go figure. That's only because they've been around for 40 years. That's why it's an old song. Uh, It's Arise, My Love. Are you familiar with that? We need to do it in two weeks. Here's, Here's the opening verse. Not a word was heard at the tomb that day. So this is Easter morning. Just shuffling of soldiers' feet as they guarded the grave. One day... Two days, three days had passed. 
Could it be that Jesus had breathed His last? Could it be that His Father had forsaken Him, turned His back on His Son, despising our sin? All hell seemed to whisper, just forget Him, He's dead. Then the Father looked down to His Son and He said, Arise, my love. Arise, my love. The grave no longer has any hold on you. No more death sting. No more suffering. Arise. Arise, my love. If you're in Christ, you've risen that way. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is what has created new life in you. Now, you know that I, I love music, uh, the piano. It's no surprise that the Spirit of God speaks to me at times through music. But I've noticed that the songs that elicit that type of response from me almost always have something to do with the cross. Well, let me close by asking you, are you a child of God? Are you sure that you are a child of God? How can anyone be sure? Well, first... Have you abandoned all trust in your own good works and trusted in Christ alone to save you from God's judgment? That is the main source of assurance. But how can we know if your faith is genuine? Well, is the Holy Spirit governing your life so that you fight against and kill your sin on a daily basis? Is the Holy Spirit confirming to you the wonderful truth that God has adopted you into His family. Now part of that confirmation is that you often find yourself crying out to the Father for help and grace in your time of need. And the Spirit repeatedly confirms to you the many promises that God gives to us as His children. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful most of all for Jesus. Lord, we thank You for the price that was paid at the cross that we might be in relationship with You in a right relationship. And Father, I pray this morning if there's anybody out here struggling because they're not sure if they're saved or not, I pray that You would speak to their hearts to show them the reality of who Jesus is and what He has done for them and that You would draw them to Jesus this morning. If there's anybody out here that's struggling just with assurance in general, Father, they, they think that they know You, they believe that they do, but it's still a struggle. I pray that You would just speak comfort and peace to their hearts. Wrap Your arms of love around them as their Father. Confirm to their hearts that they are Your child. Do this and we'll give You praise and glory for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're out there this morning and, and, and you, you know that you don't know Christ, that's a double negative of some sort. If you don't know Christ, uh, today's the day. Uh, God is the one that you have sinned against, uh, so you ask God for forgiveness. Uh, he's the one you, you, you have offended. Ask God to forgive you and trust in what Christ did some 2,000 years ago. I was reading, uh, it's a church down in Sarasota where we're at, and I was looking at their beliefs, and, and somewhere in there it says, under, under the salvation part, salvation has no, nothing to do with anything that you do. <laughs> salvation has everything to do with what Christ did on the cross.
So ask God to forgive you and trust Christ. He'll turn you, he'll make you a new creation, Paul says. He'll take out that heart of stone. He'll give you a heart of flesh. You will understand, you'll see things concerning God, Jesus, Christianity, this whole ball game, everything we're talking about will start to make sense like it never has before. I encourage you, if you don't know Christ, turn to Him today. If you're a believer, I hope that uh, this, this message has done a little bit to get you a little bit closer in that uh, assurance to know that, yes, I am a child of God. Now, it was just, uh, I don't know, three weeks or so ago where I, I, met, I met a couple who are sitting back here today, uh, Roscoe and, 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 and Cindy. And Roscoe, he, he's, got, he's going through chemo and it's rough and what have you. And uh, something prompted me to ask him, are you dying? He said, not according to your message today, I'm not. And he's got the most incredible attitude towards this understanding that God is sovereign. God loves him, and God is in control. So whatever he's got in store for Roscoe is good enough for Roscoe. Man, I hope I have that type of just walk straight ahead faith when that day comes. Right? That's the assurance we want to have, that God is our Father, and that He loves us. If, If you're in Christ, let me tell you, God loves you perfectly. Um, we, we, can't, we can't fathom the depths. His, his love is so deep for us that there's nothing that you could do to make Him love you more. And, and the opposite is true. There's nothing you can do to make Him love you less. His love for you is perfected in Christ. Come, yeah, just, just walk in faith. Trust God as your Father. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.